But uh, why don't we stand and read from the Gospel, actually not the Gospel, from 1 Peter. We'll stand and read from 1 Peter, uh, beginning in chapter 2, verse 18. So beginning in verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are reasonable. For this finds favor for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you in sin and are harshly treated, you endure with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might, might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. For you are continually straying like a sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd, the guardian of your souls. So let's pray. Lord, uh, today is a very fitting sermon for absolutely every single person in this room. Not only because uh, of uh, most of our experiences with work, but this passage extends beyond work. And uh, when we get into the meat of it, we're going to see exactly what you meant by that. And when Tori was leading us in worship, Lord, that song, Your Grace is Enough, is well, those words are perfect for today's message. Uh, and uh, if you walk away from today with your word penetrating our hearts, Lord, may that song accompany it as we learn from today's uh, passage that Peter gave us 2,000 years ago. We look forward to our time in the Word. We look forward to our, your instruction to us. We, we need to be changed from um, the heart, in our hearts and minds. And we all come in with preconceived ideas about how to live the Christian life. But you're going to challenge us today. And you're going to push, push us in places we don't want to go. But uh, at the same time, Lord, we, uh, we want to be committed to you in not only our speech, but in our actions as well. So we look forward to your, our time together. And may your Spirit guide me in the truth. In Christ's name. Amen. Well, as you can tell by the scripture reading today, uh, we will be looking at Peter's instruction to us regarding submission in the workplace. Last week we looked at submission to the civil government, today is the workplace. But before we dive into Peter's application to us, I want to give you a background, some background information on the master-slave relationships that existed in the Roman Empire in New Testament times. This is important because even when I use the word master and slave, I'm sure all sorts of pictures and thoughts come to your head of what this might have looked like. And it usually comes with negative connotations and perceptions because of the Western influence we've had in viewing slavery. And, you know, our school systems have done that to us, and so has Hollywood, and so on and so forth. So I want to first address what, what sort of parallels and the similarities and maybe the, the complete differences uh, in the next few minutes, of, uh, just so you understand what master-slave relationships look like in those days. How about the word slave itself? Well, some of you in your translations will actually have the word servant, not slave there. So that already gives you an indication of which way it's headed. But the typical word for use for slave or servant in the New Testament is doulos. Doulos is the typical name for slave. But here, Peter uses a different word, oikotes. 
And this is something you can just look up on your own if you, if you know how to use any computer software, you can find out these things for yourself. But the root of that Greek word is house. House. So in this definition, it's the inmate of a house or a domestic servant. The slaves, you're to think of slaves as being servants in a household, in a household. So this already gives you a much different picture than slavery that we've been accustomed to thinking about from the 19th century in the USA, where slaves are out in the cotton fields and are being inhumanely treated. Uh, these servants were men and women who worked primarily for their masters within Roman family homes. Now, while it was true that many slaves would have been mistreated, which is clear from verse 18, right? He says, you're to submit to those who are unreasonable. So clearly there were slaves who were mistreating, or sorry, masters that were uh, unreasonable and were unjust. We also know from verse 18 that many slaves were treated very well. Verse 18 says, submit to those who are good and gentle. It doesn't make sense to tell, for Peter to tell them to submit to good and gentle masters if there weren't any present. And so right away, that's different than 19th century where we don't get that picture in our minds. Many of these servants were actually were highly skilled. They were highly skilled laborers. They weren't unskilled like, we ha again, we have this picture of. They actually worked in professions that you and I would consider honorable and in today's culture. They were managers. They were doctors. They were nurses. They were teachers. They were musicians. And they were artisans. And they were even paid for their services. So how did one end up a slave anyway? And where did they all come from? Well, initially, the Roman Empire grew because of Roman conquest. And as Rome went through nation by nation, that swept across Europe and into the Mediterranean, uh, around Israel, they started conquering nations. Many of them became prisoners of war as they captured these people. So initially, the prisoners of war and Roman conquest was the way that people became slaves. But after they basically dominated Europe and that came to an end, people then were born into slavery. So if your mom and dad were a slave in a master's home and you were born into that home, you would then be a slave in that home. But people became slaves in other ways. One would be punishment from the courts. So you did something goofy. The Roman Empire says, we're, we're, you know, you got to be punished and your punishment is to go into slavery and work in this, in this home. Others, interesting enough, made themselves slaves voluntarily. So while it's true that many were, most of slavery was involuntary because it was through uh, Roman conquest initially and then birth and even punishment from the courts, some was voluntary. You do it for economic reasons. So let's say you're having a hard time making it out in the world. You couldn't fend for yourself for various reasons. You'd sell yourself into slavery because the economic conditions in that home would be greater than out in the street. And again, this is very different than our 19th century, pre 19th century preconceptions. However, one striking similarity did exist, and that's that servants had no legal rights. They had no legal rights. They were the property of their master. So whatever he said or she said was law. And if any injustice occurred, they had no legal recourse. They couldn't go to a, uh, a higher court and say, I'm not getting treated fairly. It didn't matter. Whatever the master did, was, or whatever the master decided to do and how they treated you, you had no way out. No one to take your complaints to, and no one to ensure justice was given to you. Now this is why the spread of the gospel throughout the Roman Empire made things so interesting. You see, slaves made up a good percentage of the church. 
Because there were millions upon millions of slaves in the Roman Empire, when the gospel spread through uh, people like uh, Paul and his Christian workers, many of the slaves heard the message and converted to Christianity. Uh, John MacArthur, in his commentary, thinks that almost the entire church was actually made up of slaves. This is interesting to think about. As a result, then, a particular issue arose within the church. It had to do with this attitude of slaves in regards to their newfound freedom in Christ. You see, if you're under the authority of a master, and now you become a Christian, as a, in a Christian thinking, you are now free from that master. Because your only authority and your only allegiance is to be to Jesus Christ. So, these slaves then would think, well, I become a Christian now, and so now I don't have to obey anymore and submit to my master, because my master is the Lord Jesus. And so this is uh, an issue the apostles had to deal with, and this is why we find multiple places in the scriptures where Paul and the apostles deal with uh, master-slave relationships and what their freedoms did entail and what they didn't entail. 1 Corinthians 7 deals with this. Colossians chapter 3 deals with this. Ephesians chapter 6 deals with this. And Philemon, the whole book, is dedicated to a runaway slave who was told by Paul to go back to his master and submit once he became a Christian. That's what the whole book's about. So we can see here, this is a pervasive issue in the churches because slavery, most of the, a lot of the Christians, if not all the Christians, well not all, but the majority, a good portion of the Christians were slaves in the, in the church. So they had to deal with this thing. And so what's Peter's overarching command to someone who's become free in Christ? Uh, someone who's free in Christ is submit to their masters. Servants, in verse 18, be submissive to your masters with all respect. That's what you're to do. Now that word submit, as you, if you remember from the Greek word from last week in, the, in terms of the government, was hupotasso. It means to uh, arrange or place oneself under the authority of another. Or to render obedience to that person. So the message to the Christians was their freedom in Christ did not allow them to undermine the societal structures. They might be free in Christ, but they're not free to rebel against their masters. They were to submit to them. But not only to those who were kind. Did you notice that in verse 18? Not only to kind and gentle ones, but to unreasonable ones as well. Unreasonable ones. Now what does that mean? What does unreasonable mean? Well, the literal translation in Greek means crooked or curved. So if you're an unreasonable boss, you're kind of crooked. So already in your mind, you've got the idea of what this guy might, or this guy would have looked like. But other places in the New Testament, it's used to refer to people who are perverse and dishonest and morally evil. Okay? So again, you're working this through. Okay, what kind of boss would be morally evil and dishonest and perverse? What kind of things would they have to do? Well, I was starting to think through these things in my own head, like what, what kind of actions would these be? And, and I was trying to work this out, and I was going to come up with a list on my own. But I thought, you know what, maybe the Bible can help me understand what some of these mistreatments might have been. And I found this interesting word in verse 19 that gave me a clue. Look at this. He says, For this finds favor for the sake of conscience towards God, if a, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. So Peter links verse 18 with unreasonable bosses or unreasonable masters with bearing up under sorrows. So I thought if I could look up what sorrow means, I can understand what kind of uh, things they're enduring under unreasonable treatment. Well, the sorrow interestingly means pain, grief, or distress. 
And every, almost every use of its word in the New Testament, it describes one's mental anguish. One's mental anguish. Only on occasion does it, is it used to describe one's physical pain. But the word sorrow does include both physical and mental pain, although it leans towards mental anguish. So this gives us an indication then of what this treatment must have looked like for these slaves or servants. This unreasonableness included both physical and mental abuse, with probably a, a proliferation towards mental treatment. Now, within the Bible, or within Peter itself, the rest of his book, we actually see some of these, ideas, these concepts there. Remember in chapter 2, verse 12? Look what it says there. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, observe them. So these, bo these bosses would have been slandering these uh, servants. In 4.14, it says this. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of a, and the glory of the Lord rests upon you. These men and women who were working as servants were being reviled. In other words, they were being insulted and mistreated because of their relationship with Jesus Christ. So these are, some, these are two categories in which we know for sure these men and women have been treated. But perhaps other things are going on. If they're crooked, and that means and they're dishonest, maybe they were getting cheated out of their wages. Maybe they were working longer hours for the same pay. Maybe they were working under unfair conditions. Maybe they were always being criticized and never being recognized for a job well done. Or other people were taking credit, or they were, they were, they were taking credit for things that the slave had done. And so on and so forth. Now you would think in cases like that, that Peter would say, you have the right to rise up and rebel and take things into your own hands. But Peter says, even in situations like that, you arrange your life underneath a master. You submit to them. That's pretty intense and incredible instruction when you think about it, but the application is very clear to us. It doesn't matter how your boss treats you. It doesn't matter what morals and ethics they uphold. It doesn't matter if you like them as a person. It doesn't matter if they haven't given you a raise in a long time, even though you think you deserve it. It doesn't matter if they criticize you. It doesn't matter if they show favoritism to other employees over you. It doesn't matter if it, they treat you just like a number and not like a person. As Christian employees, we are to submit ourselves under our superiors and give them the honor and respect they are due. Now, I know this probably is very difficult for you and I to listen to and for us to, us, for to, for us to swallow, especially based on your past experiences and maybe even your current circumstances at work. And if you're like me, the very first question you ask was, well, why should I? I mean, that doesn't seem even right and fair. God can't possibly want me to do that. There's no justice in that. Well, I'm glad you asked that and thought that question because Peter has more to say to us about that kind of attitude. Read verse 19 and 20 with me. He says, For, here's a substantiation for why to submit yourselves to unreasonable bosses. <laughs> uh, this finds favor if for the sake of conscience towards God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. 
You know, when uh, Dan and I often study for sermons and, and other passages of Scripture, uh, we often ask this question, uh, what surprised you most in the passage? When you're reading that text of Scripture, what was the most surprising thing that you saw? What's the observation that struck you? Because often in that, there's a good lesson. Well, for me, there's a massive lesson here. It's something that struck me, and it comes in verse 19 and verse 20. Notice in verse 19 what bearing up under unjust suffering accomplishes, and notice in verse 20 what patiently enduring suffering, suffering accomplishes. God's favor is upon you. <laughs> you notice that? For this finds favor with God if you bear up under sorrow. And then verse 20, if you, if you do what is right and suffer for it, and you patiently endure it, you find favor with God. Now that word favor is actually translated grace. So when you suffer unjustly, even though you did nothing wrong at work, God's grace is upon you. So let me give you an example at work of what this might look like. I'll give you verse 19 and verse 20 in action. There's two of you in the staff room at coffee break. Uh, both of you are gossiping about uh, another employee. And while the boss walks in, well, you don't, well, the boss walks in, but you don't see them because your back is turned to the door. He hears you and then later on calls you into the office. And they sit you down and he says, by the way, um, you know, Sheldon, I'll just see you're right in my direct vision here. <laughs> Sheldon, uh, I have something to talk to you about. Uh, that's, not, that's not how we treat one another at work. And so I've got this written up uh, reprimand for you and I want you to sign in date here that the next time you do that and I catch you, you're going to be terminated. And you walk out of there and you patiently endure something like that. God says, what credit is there to you, Sheldon, for enduring that? Because you suffered justly. You did something wrong. And so therefore, when you patiently endure a reprimand like that, it makes total sense. Because you should be, that's just something that should have been given to you based on your actions. But let's take the same scenario now. Sheldon's sitting in the room and another co-worker's there. And this person is gossiping about a fellow employee. And the boss walks in again, and you don't see them walk in because your back is turned to the door, but you haven't participated. You're listening and listening and listening. You feel very uncomfortable in the situation, but you don't, you don't add anything to the conversation. Because when the boss walks in, they see two of you, he or she presumes that you are about gossiping about that person as well. So later on in the day, the same punishment happens. They, cut, they bring you into the room, they reprimand you and have you sign a sheet saying, that uh, you are basically going to be terminated the next time you gossip about an employee. You might plead your case, but at the end of the day, the boss says, too bad, I don't believe you. What God says is this, if you endure with patience that kind of treatment, even though your job's in the line, this finds favor with God. <laughs> this finds favor with God. You see, this is why gaining God's perspective is so important for us as Christians. Because if you're honest with yourself, like I was this week, how many of you in a situation like that, or something similar, would think that God's favor was upon you in a situation like that? I doubt any one of you, your first response is, God is grace is upon me. <laughs> you know what I would do? I'd be like, God, where are you in this whole thing? Did you not just see what happened to me? When are you going to take action and do something about this mistreatment? I mean, my rights weren't met. My rights were violated. I want someone to stand up and get justice. In fact, I'm going to do it myself. I want revenge. 
And I'm angry about this. Where are you? Even in our prayers, right? We go to God and you wouldn't thank Him for your prayer. Say, oh, thank you, Lord, for what happened to me at work today. I'm so grateful that your favor is upon me. You'd be like, God, hello, uh, where are you? Uh, did you see what just happened to me? What are you going to do about it? But what Peter teaches us is that God doesn't feel sorry for you, like you'd be feeling sorry for yourself. His favor is actually upon you. You see, Romans chapter 12, verse 2 this is, this is incredible, right? We've read this verse over and over. It says this, Do not conform, be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In an area like this, when injustice is done to you, when you did nothing wrong, we need God's renewal in our minds at that moment. Because you would not be thinking, at least I don't think you would, that God was in favor of what just happened to you. You be thinking, God has abandoned me, and I, He needs to do something about this situation. So we have a lot to learn still and to grow when it comes to dealing with injustices done to us when we, we've wronged unfairly. And here's why it's so difficult for us. Our fundamental problem is not accepting this teaching. Right? It's basically, it's basically living this out in their applications. But this affects not only areas of work, but in all areas of life, because we want our rights met. You and I want our rights to be met. Not only want it, we actually demand it. We demand it. We're not willing to overlook injustice. We're not willing to overlook wrongs committing against us as a general statement. I'm not saying we can't explore and pursue the means of trying to protect ourselves, or especially in the area of work, that we could maybe go to the labor laws that exist and maybe make an appeal. But here's the key, we can't be overcome or consumed by it if justice does not happen to, for us. We can't be preoccupied with it in any area of life. And you know why? Because this leads to bitterness, it leads to resentment, and it leads to unforgiveness. If your rights aren't met, and, and the justice is not served, and you, make, you fixate on the need for that to become, you don't become a more joyous um, and sort of God-loving person. You become embittered, you resent, and you get fixated, and you become unforgiving. And here's the thing. There's another key phrase in verse 19 that we can't miss. I love this word, conscience. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience towards God a person bears up under sorrow. So why are you bearing up under sorrow? Why? Because of your mindfulness of God. It's not our own tenacity that enables us to patiently endure injustice. It's that our mind is set on God and we trust Him in the injustice. I like what Wayne Grudem said about this. He said this. To our, when our conscience is towards God, here's what he says. It is a trusting awareness of God's presence and never failing care that is the key to righteous suffering. It is the confidence that God will ultimately right all wrongs which enables a Christian to submit to an unjust master without resentment, rebelliousness, self-pity, or despair. It's the ultimate confidence that God will ultimately right all wrongs which enables a person to do so. Paul similarly speaks of the same thing in Ephesians chapter 6. He says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, 
not people. Because you know that the Lord will reward each one of you for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. You work as if it's, you're working for Jesus Christ, not for what other people can or can't do for you, or how they'll reward you, or how they'll seek justice for you, and so on and so forth. You see, our purpose as life as believers within our society is first and foremost to bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ. Not to be treated well, not to have an easy life, not to, have happy, not to be happy as good as all these things are. We are to honor and serve Him and not be fixated on having our rights met and always getting justice. Now Peter could have left his teaching here and that would have been enough for his readers to go, okay, I know what to do. And he could, leave it, he could have left it there and you and I would say, okay, we also know what to do. But it's as if he knew his readers as well as you and I still had a pushback to all this. And we had this yeah but list. Yeah but you don't know my circumstance. You don't know about my situation at work. You don't know about my marriage. You don't know about my family, my brother, my sister. You don't know about this and that and the other. So what does Peter do? He gives us an incredible example, example in the living life of Jesus Christ. Because no one in history got more unfairly treated by society and failed to have his rights met than him. Read with me verse 21 through 25. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. Now these five verses could have a sermon done for them all in themselves. But I'm just going to highlight two points from this five verses that I think are important to stay within the theme of what we're talking about. First is Peter's emphasis on Jesus' lack of need for retaliation and need for justice. His emphasis on Jesus' need for retaliation, for his rights to be met, and this need for justice. Look at the PowerPoint up here. Look at verse 22. Again, this Jesus suffered, yet no sin or deceit was found in his mouth. Verse 23, Jesus was reviled, so he's insulted and mistreated, yet did not retaliate. Verse 23, he suffered again, and again he did not retaliate. If anyone had the right to stand up for what he, what he didn't deserve, it was him. But he never demanded that his rights be met. He never sought justice to be served in, in those situations. And likewise, Peter says, Okay, I'm telling you to do this. I know you don't want to do this. I know you think it's unfair to, to endure and suffer unjustly when you did nothing wrong. But let me give you a prime example of what your Savior did. But, how did he get through it? How did he get through such injustices? Well, verse... Um, the second thing I want you to notice starts from verse 23. The way he got through it is he kept entrusting himself to the Father. Look at verse 23. And while being reviled, he did not revile in turn. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. 
The way he got through this unjust, this righteous suffering was to trust in his Father. Now, often we use, like, you know, we always use words in Christian, Christian um, circles that are kind of like, we just drop words like everyone knows them. Like, if you're helping someone get through something, well, just trust in Jesus. And then you go, oh, okay, let's, trust, let's pray you trust in Jesus. And you walk away, you actually don't know what that means. <laughs> How do you practically do that? Right? I want to help you understand what trust and be to entrust yourself to the God really looks like. Okay? The word means to hand over or commit yourself. You're to hand over or commit yourself. So Jesus in those moments kept handing himself over and committing himself to the Father. And notice that it was a past tense. He kept entrusting. It means that with each wave of abuse he was receiving, from, from the first night in which he was portrayed by Jesus, right up to his last breath on the cross, he kept handing over and committing his situation to the Lord. He didn't retaliate, he didn't seek his own justice, he made himself, submitted himself to his Father's plan, knowing that he ultimately was a righteous and fair judge. And watch this, he left room for God to be the avenger of the wrong that was done to him. As ultimately, he knew these people were going to have to stand before him one day and pay for it all. And ultimately, with their life. He left room for God to be the avenger. He knew that God was a righteous and fair judge. So he kept entrusting himself, committing his life over to him, knowing that ultimately God had his back and was going to take care of this at some point in history. Our problem is we want it now. But God doesn't always deal with people now. He sometimes deals with people in the future. And listen, church, we need to thank Him. And we have to understand how important it was that He did this. Do you see how you and I benefited in verse 24? He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die of sin and live in righteousness. For by His wounds you were healed. For you and I were sheep that were gone astray. You see, if Jesus didn't entrust himself and didn't have and demanded his rights be met, you and I would be standing before the Lord and have to face our own punishment at the judgment. If he didn't do that and leave God, room for God to be a righteous judge and take care of the situation, you and I would have to stand before God the judgment and pay for our own sin. You and I wouldn't be reconciled to God. And I don't know about you, but when I replay my past and I put that movie on a screen. I would not want to think about what kind of judgment and punishment God would hand out to me in order for justice to be served, justice to be served in that last day. And Christ says, well, I did it for you, and so therefore, I didn't demand my, my rights to be met so you could be in glory. And we're to pattern ourselves after Him. You and I need to leave room for God to be the avenger of injustices that occur. And when we take matters into our own hands, we make a mess of it. We really do. We make a mess of it. Most of the time. And Paul in Romans actually gives us very clear instruction on this in Romans chapter 12. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Some of you, I don't know if you're thinking this or not, but some of you might be thinking, well, okay, that was Jesus, though. I don't really know of any living example of someone who could do that. 
I want to tell you a story um, of someone who basically exemplified all the things we've talked about in their life in one particular night. This man, uh, this was a young soldier who was in basic training, who was weak and falling behind the rest of the men in their basic training. He was a target for the particular sergeant who worked on duty, and the sergeant often abused him. And one day, uh, after training, the guy was so weak and so sort of unconditioned and unable to do the demands of training that he basically lay prone on the ground from absolute fatigue from the day's work that they had, a, that they had just completed. And when the sergeant saw this guy laying prone on his stomach and basically unable to keep up the rest of the men, the sergeant pummeled him with his uh, boots. Pummeled him so bad, he left him battered and bruised that he couldn't even walk and the other soldiers had to carry him to his bunk that night, or that day. He spent the day in the bunk, and uh, time went on, and the next, very next morning, the sergeant awoke and went to put on his boots, and saw they were shined to a glisten. And when he asked who did it, they said, the soldier that you pummeled the day before. So the sergeant went to the, the young soldier and says, why did you do that for me? And he proceeded to tell him how Christ had given him the ability to love him. Christ had put in his heart to love him. And he gave him his testimony. And later on, the sergeant became a Christian. <laughs> that's verse 15. Sorry. And that's verse 12 at its best. When they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. When we don't seek justice, even though we demand, we want it, and that we want our rights to be met, we leave room for God to work and be our avenger. So what lessons can we learn from today? First one is this. As Christian employees, we are to submit to our superiors as if we were serving Christ himself. Christian employees were to submit to our superiors as if we were serving Christ himself. That's verse 18. Submit to your masters with all respect. Right? And Ephesians chapter 6. You work as if you're serving the Lord, not men. It doesn't matter if we're good and gentle. It doesn't matter if we're unreasonable. Our conduct is to be determined by our love for Christ and not by any personal considerations for the character of the employer. We don't strike when everyone else strikes. We don't walk out when everyone walks out. We don't participate in lockouts. We don't pick it, and so on and so forth. We submit to even unreasonable bosses out of our love for the Lord so that no one can slander as our witnesses on the line. And our ultimate allegiance is to God. And we bring honor to the Lord when we respect and obey our bosses. Lesson two. When Christians patiently endure and choose not to be retaliatory, to unjust suffering, God's favor rests on them. This for me was the biggest lesson I learned this week. It, makes, it made me rethink life, boy. God doesn't feel sorry for me when I'm, un, when I'm suffering unjustly. I don't have to cry out to him saying, God, notice me. Don't you care about me? He's like, yeah, I totally care about you. And I'm proud of you. And I know exactly what's going on. And my grace is upon you for that. Like Tori saying, your grace is enough. 
It's commendable. Because that's exactly what Christ did for you and me. He had rights. He had rights. He didn't deserve to die. He died for your sins. If anyone had the right to say, this isn't fair, he did. He did it anyway. But he submitted himself to the Father and trusted himself to the Father and went through with it anyhow. And we were to pattern ourselves after him. Lesson three. Sorry, let's just say three, not four. As Christians, we are not to fixate on the fairness of life, but on patterning ourselves after Jesus Christ and the example he left us. So it ties into lesson three. We're not to fixate on fairness, but on being following Christ as an example. Listen, there's no promise in the Bible that Christian life's going to be fair. Otherwise, Peter wouldn't write this here. How many disputes, if you were to live this out as a practice in your life, how many disputes would not occur at work? What would your marriage look like? What would your marriage look like if you were to do this? If you actually didn't fixate on fairness, how, many, how much less strife would there be in your own home? How about friendships? How about family relations? If you were to overlook their wrongs, and not fixate on this need for justice, how much better would the family relationship be? Because as soon as you seek justice, you're going to create a division. Right? How many times have you sought out justice and the other person says, Oh, now I totally see it your way. I'm so glad you brought that to my attention. I'm not going to switch to your way of thinking about life. Has it ever happened to you? Ever sought out justice, told the other person, and said, I'm so glad you told me that. I'm so wrong. We're going to do it your way now for the rest of the life. It almost never happens. Never, almost never. So why not then not fixate on the fairness of life? You can pursue it, but if you don't get it, you don't make it your life's mission to hold on to resentment, bitterness, and unforgiveness and push for it. You won't bring relationships closer together by doing that. You see, again, our purpose in life as believers within our society is first and foremost to bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ not to be treated well, have an easy life, a happy life, as good as these things are. Lesson four and the final lesson. The only way to endure and suffer injustice like this is to entrust ourselves and be mindful of God in the moment. The only way you'll ever endure unjust suffering is to be, is to be conscious of God, verse 19, and entrust yourself to Him, verse 23. So again, I talked about, you know, I was using words like that, like, you know, almost like kindergartners, like just trust Jesus with your life. And I was trying to help you understand how, how to understand that even a better way. But let me see if I can do even a better job than I did before with explaining the details of what this means. Here's what you do in those moments when you're suffering unjustly. Here's the things that you can go back to Peter to get through your head. One, remember, know, remember that God's favor is upon you when you endure this. So your flesh will say, like this isn't right something's not right here but when this happens to you you have to switch your mind and go Peter tells me actually God's grace is upon me in this moment because Jesus lived an identical life for me so God's favor is upon me that's the first thing you think about that's how you're, that's how you're mindful of God in the moment two, knowing he left you as an example so if you go, well, this isn't fair, you're like, oh, right. So, so was it not fair for him to die for me and, put, and me put him on the cross? 
So that's the second place you go. Third, you don't retaliate. You leave room for God to be the judge. Christ believed that his father was a righteous judge. And he left room for that to be taken out. We are to do the same. And this young soldier applied that to his life. And guess what happened? He's a sergeant became a Christian through that. I'm not saying that when you leave room for God that everyone's going to become a Christian. The chances are pretty small to be honest. But that's not the point. The point is we have to allow God to handle our justice for us. Those three things are how you entrust yourself and be mindful of God. Those three things is how you practically do that in those situations.